Hey everyone, it's Rose. I know, surprise, you're so surprised, it's me. Um, I'm here with a bonus podcast, surprise, again. You didn't think you were gonna get one probably until May 14th, which is when the next season comes out, um, Bodies. I picked all of the episodes yesterday and I'm starting to report and write and it's so fun, it's gonna be so good. Um, what this is, is the interview that I did with Charlie Jane Anders, the author of The City in the Middle of the Night. Um, the City in the Middle of the Night was our March book club book pick. So if you are in the $7 and up Patreon level, you got to um, discuss this book with us in the Slack, um, ask questions, and then I asked Charlie Jane those questions on this interview. So I want to be very clear, this interview is for people who have read the book. So there are lots and lots of spoilers from the very beginning. So if you have not read the book and you want to read the book and you want to avoid spoilers, turn back now. Do not listen to this podcast because there are so many, I cannot overstate how many spoilers are in this episode. Um, but Charlie Jane and I talked about world building. We talked about various characters. I admitted my deep, dark secret um, about one of the main characters in this book. Um, and you get to hear the answers to some of the questions that um, book club members asked in the Slack. So if you want to hear that, um, and obviously if you're in the book club and you participated, great. If you are not in the book club and you want to join the book club, um, you can do that by upping your patronage to $7 per episode instead of $5. Um, what you get is access to a Slack. We read a book every month. This month we're reading The Big Nine by Amy Webb, which is a book all about technology and these big technology companies and how they are shaping the future. Amy has been on the show before. Um, there will be another interview with Amy at the end of this month about her book. I'm going to try to do this for every book that I can is interview the author and release these little episodes about the books. Also, a quick note on this. Uh, for the first 10 minutes of this interview, my microphone was apparently not working. Um, thankfully, I recorded a back up. I always record a backup on just sort of like bad speakers. Um, so you'll hear what my questions, but they're just going to sound kind of bad. And then about 10 minutes in, uh, I realized what happened and I got the microphone working. So you will hear me go from sounding like I'm on the phone in a tin can somewhere to sounding like a professional person who knows how to use a microphone, which technically I am. Um, so with that, I will take you to this interview I did with Charlie Jane. Again, so many spoilers. <laughs> Turn back if you don't want them. Okay, here's Charlie Jane and me talking about her book. Okay, great. So um, I guess let's start with like, what sparked this book for you? Like, what was the sort of nugget of the idea that kind of launched this book? So uh, this book really just purely came out of me being interested in tidally locked planets. And, you know, I was working at io9, uh, where uh, we, thanks to Anna Lee, we always had this amazing, uh, sorry, thanks to the founder, Annalie Newitz, we always had this amazing um, kind of mix of science and science fiction uh, where we would have articles about real life science alongside, you know, articles about the latest Star Trek thing or the latest, like, you know, Battlestar Galactica or whatever, uh, whatever was happening when we first started the site. And um, so I was always reading about these discoveries of exoplanets that we were making in real time, which, you know, there's been an amazing just the last like 10 years or so have been an incredible time for discoveries of exoplanets. And, um, you know, and I was talking to scientists and reading articles and what scientists kept saying is that if we colonize another planet, it is likely to be tidally locked to its sun, meaning that uh, there is one side that always faces the sun and one side that always faces away, the same way that the moon is tidally locked to Earth. 
And, um, you know, over time, I just got really obsessed with sort of trying to imagine that and talk to people about it, but also just spent a couple of years just sketching out this world that, you know, trying to imagine what it would be like to have permanent darkness on one side of you and permanent, super like blazing light on the other side. And just trying to picture that in my head. And it was really super interesting. Um, and, you know, then the characters and the story kind of came out of that. And really the starting point story-wise was imagining, okay, what if there are creatures living in the permanent darkness and somebody learns how to communicate with them? And at first I was like, well, maybe we pick up the story years later after this person has been communicating with the creatures in the darkness for a long time or... You know, I had a bunch of different versions of it, but I kept coming back to that and trying to kind of make that work. Yeah, I was going to ask that because I know that, you know, I had heard you talk about this before and you talked about these tidally locked planets, um, but I was curious what like the next piece of it was, right? And it, so it's the Galette. Is that how you say it? Galette? Yeah, the Galette, I guess is how I pronounce it. Um, um, and yeah. And so did those, like, so those reminded me of the um, the creatures in A Wrinkle in Time. Um, oh wow! You know that, like, where she like goes, she's rescued by those creatures. Do you know what I'm talking about? I do, although it's been so long since I read that book. I read that book when I was a little kid, and it had a huge impact on me. But it's I haven't reread it since. It's so funny. I saw the movie. Yeah, they're not in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, it's so funny because I knew the movie was coming out, and I was like, like you, I read it when I was a kid, and it was like really important to me as a kid, but I hadn't revisited. So I was like, Oh, I'll reread it. And I had completely forgotten about the these like alien creatures that are in this like section at wow. the end of the book, but they really remind me of the, uh, of the Gillette. Like they're similarly, like they, they like sort of take this character and they, they nurture her and they kind of like teach her a way of communicating. It's just like really interestingly, like a, par a sort of parallel. Oh, wow. I should go back and reread that. Cause like, I have no memory of that at all. And I'm sure it, <laughs> I did read the book and I, I'm sure that like sunk in subconsciously. I feel like I love that, that kind of that trope or archetype or whatever of like the aliens who are super different, but they kind of make, they kind of improve people or they make people able to like understand them. I think that that's like a thing that I've always loved. So it's not surprising that I kind of iterated it. Yeah. It is a part of that book that I feel like no one ever remembers. <laughs> it's like at the very oh, end. Yeah. I didn't remember it either. I was like, Whoa, I totally forgot about this. Um, and maybe I connected it to your book cause I had just reread a wrinkle in time. So it was like on my mind. Um, but were there inspirations for you for like these creatures who, who live in the darkness for the book? Yeah, I mean, I think a, a major influence was definitely Octavia Butler and the sort of Xenogenesis series, which has these strange aliens who transform people and the Owen Kali. Uh, but also, I mean, I think I was just, I didn't set out necessarily to think of it in terms of like, like what happens at the end of the book where they kind of transform Sophie was not something that I was thinking of at the start of the book. I was mostly just thinking about, um, you know, what happens if... Uh, you know, what, what kind of creatures would be able to live in that super extreme environment where it's dark all the time and there's like a really super loud wind. And I just sort of, I didn't want creatures that were like earth animals that were just like, oh, you know, we took their giant cockroaches or their giant dung beetles or whatever. I wanted them to be really different and I wanted them to have senses that weren't human senses and to communicate in some other way that didn't require on, didn't rely on sound or vision or whatever. And so I kind of, and it had to be something simple enough that at the beginning of the book, um, Sophie can figure it out. And like, it's, she's in obviously a really tough situation and it's not something that 
it's going to be able, she doesn't have hours to kind of figure out how to communicate with them. So it has to be something relatively simple. And so the idea that they kind of have this form of touch telepathy where they can share um, experiences and ideas and memories, especially, and, and just thoughts um, by kind of touching you with these little tendrils that they have felt like a kind of a good way of solving that problem of, of how she could learn to communicate with them quickly and also how they communicate in the darkness. And I didn't actually kind of have the idea yet that she was going to get that ability by the end of the book. But of course, once I got there, it kind of made sense that that would be what would happen. Um, assuming that they have their, as we kind of set out, they're really good at bioengineering and geoengineering kind of. And so I kind of, I don't know. I, um, yeah, I wanted them to be super mysterious and different and kind of appear super monstrous and terrifying at first. But then when you get to know them, they're actually kind of adorable and awesome. And so that was kind of where I was coming from. And there are probably a million influences. Actually, the other day I was talking about this and I was thinking, you know, one of the other things that I did at io9 a lot was uh, I got to talk to Wayne Barlow and feature some of his artwork. And Wayne Barlow is this creature designer who he works on Avatar, he's worked on a ton of things, but he also did his own books where he just published drawings of strange, bizarre creatures and with little stories about each one of them. And, you know, he's a master of creature design that is just weird and <laughs> just different and not, not kind of not kind of your usual kind of Hollywood creature. Yeah. Yeah, I, I want to come back to the way they communicate in this idea of memory, because there's like a couple of different ways of remembering, right, that are kind of talked about in the book. Um, but before that, like, just to kind of keep going with this, like how you developed these characters and this idea. Um, and I just want to say that I love the image of like the um, the giant squid with like a feathered tentacle it was like so oh, cool. Yay. Okay, cool. <laughs> yay. Oh, my God. Yay. I'm so glad. That was so cool. But there is a ton of world building in this, right? You, you know, you're on a different planet. You're super far future. And you've talked about this a little bit on the um, Our Opinions Are Correct podcast, which I linked to in the Slack for people who are yay. in the Slack. Um, and definitely people should go listen to that to talking about how you sort of design a world for the far future but i'm curious like from the process side when you think about like there's so much backstory that like much of which doesn't get super spelled out in the book exactly but, like how do you what is your process for like coming up with that world building do you have like a system or a method like how do you do it man i wish i had a system <laughs> or a method that would be amazing i really i wish that that was the case you know, I I wish somebody would come up with one, although I probably wouldn't use it because I, I hate, you know, other people's <laughs> systems or whatever. But, um, yeah, I mean, by the way, is the refrigerator too loud? It's kind of buzzing a little bit. I can't hear it. Okay, great. Okay, cool. Um, so, I mean, it's really chaotic. And often what I will do with world building is kind of, it really depends. I mean, I will often come up with what I need to kind of understand what the story is and then just start writing the story and then add in parts as I'm going. And I'm like, okay, I need this now. I need a restaurant. I need a, I need a, a place for people, characters to hang out. I need, you know, and I, I kind of joke that it's like, I'm the, the characters walking along the sidewalk and I'm kind of drawing sidewalk under their feet as they're walking. Uh, but, you know, I definitely find that when I'm writing about a, an alien society or something that is, you know, very different or farther in the future or, you know, not just like present day earth, I do have to spend more time on the world building component before I can even start writing. And, you know, I had this one story, love might be too strong a word about 
these kind of humanoid-ish uh, people on a spaceship that's like traveling to a new star system and they have like seven or eight different genders and it's a really complicated society and a really complicated setup and I spent a fair amount of time just sketching that out uh, before I was able to write the story although actually all of that kind of happened the sketching out and the writing happened within like one day because I was on a plane but uh, anyway but I don't know in the case of so in the case of the city in the middle of the night I spent like from I want to say from late 2013 early 2014 until um, you know until I quit io9 basically like uh, early May 2016 I spent all of that time just kind of scribbling in notebooks and did not really have a story or characters yet. I had a bunch of incidents that I was kind of sketching out, some of which are still in the book, like being attacked by pirates on the Sea of Murder. And, I love the Sea of Murder. And, you know, and I, there was a lot of stuff that was kind of the shape of it was sort of the same, but but the characters were completely different. The setting was, was still being sketched in. Um, there was a lot of stuff that wasn't there yet. And I was really just, you know, trying to figure out, trying to find a set of characters and a story that worked for me and really kind of, a little bit banging my head against the wall with it. And, um, you know, but I, what did happen during that time was that I sketched in the world really, really, really intensely and with a lot of detail and just like all of this stuff about like, how does the sewage work in, in CS font and how do they, what kind of food do they grow in each of the two human cities? And like, how do they generate like power and how do they, you know, just all of this like really nitty gritty stuff and, you know, trying to make, them feel lived in and that's really what it comes down to is that you want the setting to be kind of a character in the story which is a cliche that everybody always says but it's also kind of true you want the setting to be kind of a a, 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 a character in the story and um it's easy if you're writing about like early 21st century san francisco you know a place that i've lived for years i know it really well i can kind of tell you oh yeah if you go down that street there's this restaurant and there's this one place where this building burned down and now there's this other thing and you know oh this is where this thing this crazy thing happened and like everywhere i look there's like details that i'm super familiar with and having that level of kind of lived in feeling for a fictional place is really difficult and putting it on the page is also really difficult and um so I think that the more like, and so there was like a lot of that beforehand of like just working out the nitty gritty of the world. But then even once I had like a pretty polished draft of the book that was like more or less done, you know, one of my friends, uh, Claire Light actually said the world building still doesn't feel, you know, solid. It feels kind of thin in a lot of places. And so I had to kind of go back and do another pass and just add in more of like, if you look over here, you see, how these buildings are different from these buildings because they're from different stages of the of the city's history and you know just like more little historical incidents and like little details that kind of make you feel and like where you can get what kind of food and what kind of food they eat at what times and and just little details that kind of make you feel anchored to the world and like you could visit it you have to kind of feel like you you could hang out in that place in real life and it's there's no silver bullet for that i think it's just kind of really a lot of attention to detail and just kind of sensory detail and emotional detail. And just, I think that the number one thing for world building that is often a problem is uh, a sense of a dynamic past. And actually it's so funny cause like, I'm going to 
this is whatever. I, I just going, recently reread all of, uh, I just recently reread all of Ursula K. Le Guin's Hainish mm. stories and, and novels, which is like a 2000 page, like two <laughs> volume thing of like just a ton of stuff she wrote in this shared universe that she created. And they're brilliant and they're amazing. And she's a master of world building. But one thing that I noticed that she does somewhat often on some of the alien worlds that she creates is she'll say something like, it's been like this for 10,000 years, or it's been like this for like, you know, a hundred thousand years or whatever. Nothing has changed in all that time. And it's like, when I was reading that, it really kind of jumped out at me this time because I was like, really? It's just nothing has changed for like thousands <laughs> of years. Like they've had a completely stable society. Like I, and you know, I think that's a point that she was kind of making in some cases that these societies had been kind of stagnant, but still it doesn't entirely ring true to me. And like the more you can kind of be like, well, it's like this now, but it used to be like this. And before that it was like this. And there have been all these different phases in the development of the society. I feel like that was a thing that was missing from the world building in city in the middle of the night at some point, which I really like some of the stuff about like, what was she font like before the circadian restoration, which only happened like, I think 30 or 40 years ago in our time. And, you know, what were the different governments that, that Argulo had before they have this like horrible flawed system that they have now? Um, and just kind of, you know, trying to have more of a sense of a dynamic past, I think, is something that really, really makes a difference for um, for world building. Yeah, and you have this whole backstory, right, with the mothership and the various sort of groups that were on the mothership from various places. And, um, you know, like you said in that episode of Our Opinions Are Correct, you know, there's never like a big info dump where you like have one character kind of like do exposition at you where you're like, and this is what happens. You know, you kind of get it in bits and pieces towards the very end. You start to get years right when she's like in the um, the system, you kind right. of finally finally get a year of like wh where it is. And I was like, <laughs> yes, finally, I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I knew that some people would be really frustrated by the lack of like uh, any kind of dates or years. And so I was like, I'm just going to use this opportunity to kind of actually give you that in the one place where it would actually happen. I had kind of forgotten, like at the beginning of the book, I was like, what? I was like kind of trying to puzzle it together. And then I sort of forgot and didn't really care for a while. And then when you did give me, give it to me towards the end, I was like, oh, cool. And then it kind of was rethinking about like, okay, like how many generations is that? You know, just trying to kind of like puzzle through it. Um, but I'm curious, like, cause there is so much backstory that happens and stuff that happens in on the mothership and all this stuff that like doesn't get included in the book. And how do you decide how much of that backstory that you scribbled on all those pages while you were working on this actually winds up in the story? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, definitely I think world building is a thing where you kind of usually see the tip of the iceberg if 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 there is an iceberg at all. If, if you've done that amount of work, what will be seen on the page is just kind of the tip of the iceberg and it's just kind of the, the edges of like this huge thing. And that that's the way it kind of should be. And maybe some of that iceberg is a little still sketched in, but there should be a lot more stuff that, that wasn't included. And I think that what, what does get included is the stuff that kind of matters to the characters, that matters to Sophie particularly, because she's the one who's kind of really aware of all this stuff more than mouth I think and it's stuff that you know um, you know you have to kind of pick your moments to kind of sneak in a little bit of world building here and there like at one point I have Sophie and mouth meeting in a in a, a a junkyard or whatever or like basically yeah basically a junkyard um, in Argilo to plan their next move 
And that was a perfect opportunity to just fill the space with random bits of detritus and junk that tell you little bits about the past of that city and that kind of just sketch in a little bit more of the details. And I really what it is is that opportunities to do that are not as common as, as you would like because um, you can't just bring the story crashing to a halt and have people just kind of looking at stuff. So there have to be moments where it makes sense to really kind of pull back and you know, either do something like the junkyard where it's like we're in a space where, of course, we're surrounded by this, these reminders of all these different things from the past. So that makes sense. Um, but, uh, but, but then, you know, also Sophie walking around her hometown, there has to be a reason why she's particularly feeling kind of nostalgic or, or inclined to kind of think about all the different things that she sees that point to different things from the past so it has it's about picking your moments in part and like the thing with the mothership with uh the seven compartments and the kind of all the terrible stuff that happened on the mothership and after they landed that was something that i kind of just had been i don't know i always thought from early on in this process i always thought that there would have been some bad stuff that happened on the journey from earth just because i feel like that's kind of i mean a a generation ship is such a like it's an enclosed environment where there's no way to escape from that those confines and it's it's sort of like a prison almost or like a it's like an institution in some way and so of course it makes sense that you know people might go a little stir crazy but also um it's just i figure they were on the generation ship for about a hundred years and um during that you know that's a long time in the, in this in just human terms and there's never been a period in human history for a hundred years where we didn't do horrible stuff at some point. So <laughs> it just made sense that there would have been horrible stuff that happened on the mothership. And, you know, part of it, like I said on the uh, Our Opinions Are Correct podcast, I was thinking really hard about how to handle ethnicity in this book because it drives me nuts when I'm reading a future uh, story where either there's no more ethnicity, we've just done away with it, or, you know, everybody's mixed race, the end, or we just describe skin color, but we don't say anything about the cultures that people come from or ethnicities are basically just like late 20th century, early 21st century ethnicities. And we're just like, it's the 33rd century, but we still have the exact same, you know, group identifications that we had in, you know, 2000 or whatever. And so I didn't want any of those things. And so I thought a lot about this idea that I kind of, had to sketch out a future history and come up with this idea that basically the rest of the human race, the, the survivors of the human race in like the 23rd, 24th century are living in these city states that are kind of, you know, maybe a little bit like dome cities or kind of enclosed because the rest of the earth's surface is no longer habitable. And each city kind of has its own culture and its own kind of um, things that it, it's good at. And then it just sort of naturally flowed into this idea that each city contributed something specific to building this mothership that, that traveled from Earth and also that, uh, you know, they each had their own living compartment. And I think I had this idea that they would hope to arrive on the new planet with each of these living compartments containing their own cultures and their own backgrounds and, you know, that they would then set up like this rich, diverse society on the new planet. And of course, that's not what happened because it all got messed up and Basically, instead, they over time, it turned into this really homogenous uh, kind of conformist oppressive society in Siusfan. And then some people fled and, and rebelled and created something that was 
a little bit more diverse, but still kind of in some ways very oppressive in Argilo. But I guess it was just something where I wanted it to, like, just like the, the idea that the city has to feel lived in, I wanted the history, like the deep history to feel kind of lived in and like, like history and have to have that texture of history um, where some terrible things have happened and also a lot of like really interesting, cool things have happened, you know? Yeah. I have a couple of questions from readers, book club members, about some of that world building. So Hector asks why you named the nomadic people the citizens. I know you think a lot about names of stuff and naming stuff is really hard. Um, But he's sort of like, you know, as a U.S. citizen, it sort of carries certain weight. And he was curious, like whether you like how you came to that name for those nomadic people. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, there's obviously a certain irony in them being called the citizens because they don't belong to a city. And they're outside of the two major cities. Um, so they actually are kind of, in a sense, not citizens of either Argilo or Siesfant. And I think, I mean, there was a version of the book where there was more talk about the origins of the citizens. And I think all that stuff got scrubbed in the end. There, And, you know, I had like different people had different stories about how the citizens came to be. Like... Um, that they maybe started on the mothership and like there was some group of people on the mothership who kind of rebelled against the the extreme order and and control on the mothership and wanted to just kind of roam freely between the different compartments or that they started out in Ariolo, the kind of the city you know that never sleeps and they just kind of they they got sick of all of the chaos there and decided to just go out and walk around and um, I kind of, I guess in the back of my mind, I kind of think that they started out in Ariolo, that they are not maybe as old, that they're, that they maybe started a hundred years after humans arrived on the planet, which would still be a long time, but not as long. Um, as far as like, so I think that part of why they're called the citizens is, is the idea that they're kind of citizens of the world. Like that's a phrase that people used to use a lot, a, a citizen of the world. Um, or a global citizen or whatever. And I think that they see themselves as kind of citizens or they saw themselves as citizens of the entire world rather than one city or the other. And that was kind of their thing is that they wanted to explore the whole world and they wanted to um, kind of, you know, visit all of the different places where humans were living and kind of commune with, with the planet as a whole, kind of. Yeah. So Casey has a question about if you can share a tiny bit more about how the, about the mothership and how it came to be unused by the people on the planet. So there's like a little bit at the end when you have um, Mouth and Sophie sort of flying around and they see the mothership. But if you, there's any like tidbits you can share from world building about the mothership, I think Casey would love that. Yeah, I mean, um, that's a really interesting question. To me, um, what I had in the, what I kind of had in my mind was that. Um, the mothership probably like a lot of its systems got pretty worn out um, because it was so they arrived at the planet like that's let's assume that when this novel starts they've been on the planet for about 500 earth years and probably the first hundred years of that they were flying back and forth between the mothership pretty often and we know that uh, when they founded Argilo which happened after a bunch of people kind of fled from C.S. Font and you know, there was like a giant exodus of people leaving C.S. Font and presumably going on barges or some other kinds of boats across the Sea of Murder to find this other city um, and get away from those annoying people in C.S. Font. And um, <laughs> we know that when they founded C.S. Font, they were able to get the mothership to kind of, you know, 
used a little bit of terraforming, not a lot, but they dug the pit, which is where a lot of the kind of businesses happen. And they kind of made a little kind of bowl-shaped indentation for the city to give them a little protection from the, the elements. It's not as well protected as, as T.S. Font is. So we know that they were still in touch with the mothership at that point. And um, I think that, you know, what happens in general is that uh, at a certain point, you know, obviously a lot of their vehicles get destroyed when they try to v visit the night and kind of, you know, including their flying vehicles. Uh, get destroyed when they try to go into the night and explore there because the 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 gelat and other and also other creatures just wreck all their stuff. Uh, but I also think that you know systems tend to break down over time. Systems degrade, uh, especially in a planetary atmosphere. Um, and I think that a lot of their really delicate onboard, you know, computing and telemetry and and you know other sorts of avionics systems just stopped working so well after a certain point. And I also, you know, I kind of slip in there that this planet has a higher gravity than Earth, which I think makes it harder to achieve escape velocity. And I think that uh, the level of technological skill to, to needed to maintain their kind of shuttles and, and escape vehicles over time was just, you know, kind of slipped away from people. And I think that that's generally the story of humans on, on January is that, um, they maintained, you know, I, I, I didn't want it to be like they regressed to the Middle Ages or they regressed to the 19th century <laughs> or whatever, which is another common trope. But I feel like over time, just certain things became too difficult to maintain, and like anything involving computers, really, uh, because they don't have a big enough or sophisticated enough society and enough resources to keep, you know, building motherboards and, you know, whatever the, whatever in the 24th, 25th century, when they were building these things, whatever they had instead of motherboards, um, is just, you need a lot of really, like, there's a lot of precursors that go into building stuff like that, that are really complicated. And I think that they made a really good attempt at keeping that, their level of technology up, but it only probably lasted about a hundred years before they started backsliding. Um, and, you know, I've thought about, um, writing, I'm not going to write a sequel to this novel, but... That was a big question people had. Everyone wanted to know if there was a sequel. Yeah, no, there's not a sequel. <laughs> but one thing I've sort of thought about very vaguely, which is something that I wouldn't do for a long time because I have a lot of other projects I want to do, but maybe eventually, like maybe 10 years from now or something, I could write another novel that takes place like a couple generations after this one where like Sophie's an old lady and like we're kind of seeing the long-term effects of, of the changes that Sophie kind of causes. And uh, one of the things that I think would happen is eventually people are going to try to get back to the mothership um, or, you know, people, human gelat hybrids are going to try to get back to the mothership and get it going again. Um, and we, you know, if you read the translator's note um, at the start of the book, you know that there are these human gelat hybrids and they're spreading out across the galaxy. Mm-hmm. That's like, that's what I tell you right on page one, kind of, is that the long-term effect of what Sophie did in this book is that there are human Gellert hybrids, and they're not just on this one planet. They're all over the place. Yeah. So Dennis wanted to know, you mentioned Earth. Um, it's been about 500 years since humans left Earth. What is going on on Earth? Like, is it a wasteland? Like, are there still people there? That's a really good question. And I actually, I don't entirely know the answer. I sort of... <laughs> I sort of assumed that Earth is still there, that like, you know, because I just think that humans always find a way to hang on. Like we're just tenacious little 
you know, whatever's, and yet, you know, tenacious <laughs> creatures, and that we will find a way to, to survive. And, you know, I think that probably, like, I mean, there's a lot that I haven't sketched in because you kind of get the feeling in this book that the mothership was this kind of, you know, huge project that people poured a lot of resources into that was kind of like, we're going to try and save some portion of the human race by putting them on this mothership and every single one of these city-states is going to contribute. But then you also kind of know from the translator's note, again, that there are humans or human-ish people living all over the place in whatever future that translator's note is written. And, um, you know, and that they're still using English uh, or peak English as it's called. And so... There's, there definitely were other ships that left Earth and definitely other colonies and other kind of, uh, you know, humans did become kind of more of an interstellar civilization at some point. And I think that, you know, I think that there are still some version of those seven city-states or some something that evolved out of them. But by the time the novel happens, it's been about, you know, 600, 700 years since humans left Earth. I mean, even accounting for the relativistic effects and all that stuff. Um, so you have to assume that whatever is happening on earth, it's very different. And that, you know, humans are like a very different species. So, so you've done all this world building, right? We just, you know, we've talked a lot about like all the various backstories you have. And obviously like you have answers for questions like this, where you're like, Oh, I've been thinking about, you know, the ways that, that this might happen and it doesn't mm -hmm. go into the book. It was there a moment where you like knew you like that it clicked and it went from like, this is a cool world to like, this is a story that's a book. Like, how, how did you go from just like, hey, this is a really interesting premise with a lot of cool world building to like, this is a story. That was the hard part. I mean, that was especially with the, in this case, I've never had a process that was as frustrating or as, <laughs> as sort of, you know, I don't know. I mean, it was it was a really there were parts where it was like a wonderful process, but there was a lot of frustration. And, you know, Honestly, that was why I quit my job at io9. I mean, you know, I talked about it at the time. Like, I think you can look back at what I wrote when I left io9 and I say, I have this project that I am struggling with and I can't get it done unless I ha ha quit my day job. I have to focus on this completely. And so um, that was like basically at the time when I quit io9 in like, I think it was like late April, early May 2016, I had, you know, all these notebooks full of material, but I didn't have a story. I had like a bunch of incidents, but it didn't feel like a story to me. And it didn't, the characters didn't feel like they were kind of living and breathing. And it was, it was kind of the opposite of every other novel writing experience I've ever had, where usually the characters kind of take shape and there's a, there's a clear sense of story. And then it's just like, okay, how can I make this, you know, make sense? How can I like, what's the world this takes place in? What's the, you know, just kind of sketching in the details, but you have like a story in your head or you have at least part of a story in your head. Here I didn't have that. And like, I was really frustrated. And so part of what had to happen after I quit io9, when I finally had like more free time to kind of just focus, um, part of what happened was I just kind of sat down. It was like, okay, I have to kind of figure out who my main character is and what this is about and what's about emotionally, because that was the, the big chunk that I'd been struggling with. And, um, you know, there have been various attempts to create a, a main character who was something like Sophie, but not really. And like, um, a big part of it was answering the question of, okay, so we know that there's this character who goes into the darkness and, you know, learns to communicate with the creatures living there, but 
why does she go into the darkness? Why is, what, why is she, what's she doing there? What, what's the reason for her being there? And what's that about? And um, basically it was like, you know, I had versions where she went with a hunting party. There was like a bunch of young people who went into the night to hunt the galette for food. And, you know, because you could make a lot of money and it's like a cool thing. It's like a dare almost. Um, and I, you know, I wrote it that way a bunch of times, but I didn't really want to sympathize with somebody who was like hunting these amazing creatures for food, even if in ignorance. And, um, you know, I wrote it a bunch of different ways. And finally I was like, what if she has this friend and her friend gets in trouble and she basically throws herself under the bus to save her friend. And the result of that is that she gets sent into the night. And that was that was kind of that incident kind of opened out the book for me because it was like, okay, so now who is this? Why is she so willing to do that for her friend? Who is the friend? Um, it was kind of like, you know, every Ian McEwan novel almost starts with some incident where people make a rash choice and then it kind of spirals out of control. And then the rest of the book is them kind of dealing with the fallout from the choice that they made at the start of the book. And I, I, I kind of love that structure and I kind of wanted to do a little bit of that and like just, so once I figured out, you know, why Sophie was going into the night and what that was about for her and then had the relationship with, with Bianca, I was able to basically sketch out the rest of the book in terms of like the actual character development of the two characters and like their relationship. And I had kind of a version of it that started with Sophie taking the blame for the, the three food dollars and ended with Sophie and Bianca kind of um, having their final confrontation inside the palace. Um, and I, I was, I had that ending of Sophie and Bianca having their final confrontation in the palace. I think it was like late July. So it was only, it only took like, like three months kind of to get that kind of structure in my head. But once I didn't have a day job anymore, <laughs> you know, once I had unlimited <laughs> free time more or less. Um, and then I kind of went back and added mouth and, and then a bunch of other stuff. But so that was really the problem. And I was, I just, I was super stuck. I like, I couldn't figure it out until, until I didn't have a day job. Yeah. Well, and from that first sort of inciting incident, right, where she goes out and, or she's sent out into the night, um, it feels like to me so much of this book is about memory and trauma, right? Like the ways that people yeah. remember things and have ways of remembering you have mouth and her sort of traumatic memory and the ways that the citizens t talk about and deal with memory you have the ways that um you know the people on this planet whether in, in either city deal with memory you have the ways that the gellet deal with memory and trauma and like bad things that have happened did you always know you wanted that to be a, such a central theme or i don't know if you see it as a central theme but to me that's like what this book is about in many ways no it's totally <laughs> what this book is about and like honestly that kind of emerged in the writing of it um originally okay so during the kind of sketching things out phase um originally when i was like just spending like two, two and a half years just scribbling in notebooks. Um, I had this, you know, I definitely thought about sleep a lot and sleep is still in the book is like a major concern. Um, Cause it's like the whole thing of basically, again, pretty much every creative choice I made in this book comes back one way or the other to the tightly locked planet thing. Like I, that was what I kept kind of coming back to whatever I was kind of thinking about what the book was and what it was about. And, you know, part of the thing of the tightly locked planet is that, there's no kind of instinctive way of, of tracking the passage of time. Um, the sun doesn't rise, the sun doesn't set. 
the sun basically, the sky changes, stays the same all the time. The only way that the sky changes is if you walk around. And like the night and day are places rather than times. And, you know, I think I drove the copy editor a little crazy because I was like, I really need whoever copy edits this book to go through and make sure that there is no reference whatsoever to, there's no use of words like minute, hour, second, day, yesterday, tomorrow. Um, and I think... I caught a few when I was going through it, but also the copy editor caught a few stray yesterdays or tomorrows in the book. I wanted there to be none of that. I didn't want there to be any earth markers for like the passage of time at all. And I wanted it to be kind of this sense of the passage of time just being kind of a mystery. And like, there's a lot of moments in the book where people are like, so how long have we been here? And the answer is always like, well, longer than a while, but not forever, kind of. You know, we don't really know how long it's been. <laughs> we just kind of have a sense. And, like, I think that I just obsessed a lot about how people take it for granted that we kind of know how much time has passed from, like, just seeing the sun come and go, kind of, and other stuff like that. And seasons. They don't have any seasons on this planet. And, you know, so I think that other than, like, basic human biological processes – there's a lot of stuff that that there's there's it's kind of hard to kind of have a real visceral sense of the passage of time, and it's fun. They have like obviously a really rigid schedule, and they have this concept of timefulness that is designed to try to make you be aware of the passage of time in an artificial way to supplement what we don't have from Earth, and. You know, I kind of deliberately gave Siasvat a really confusing calendar that doesn't make any sense when you just read about it, and like it's just this does it's something that is like if you understand it it probably is like everything is like super organized but if you just look at it it's just this jumble of stuff um and the dates are like these weird confusing mm -hmm. things um and i wanted it to be i wanted the passage of time to just be a really confusing thing in the book and the more i thought about that and the more i thought about like the confusingness or the kind of lack of awareness of the passage of time as a natural thing I started to think more and more about memory and about how, you know, we construct our past and how the, how we, we create this artificial division between the recent past and the distant past. I mean, obviously, our brains actually have short-term memory and long-term memory, but also we're, you know, we kind of do this thing where certain things are consigned to the distant past and certain things are, like, super recent, and it doesn't really have anything to do with how long ago they were. Like, you know, there are people who are still super mad about something that happened a thousand years ago. Like in certain parts of Europe, I feel like there are people who will still be like, in 1200, this thing happened and I'm still super mad about it. And like, <laughs> it's still just as fresh as if it happened yesterday. And then there are people in the United States who were alive during segregation, who even were adults during segregation, who would like to pretend that segregation happened hundreds of years ago. And, you know, and Jim Crow and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's just, I sort of got obsessed with that and also with the, 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 the question of trauma because, you know, I wanted people to deal with scary stuff in a realistic book way in this book. I wanted Sophie to kind of process the trauma of what happens to her at the start of the book in a realistic way. And I actually read a bunch of books about trauma and talked to a bunch of my friends about who have been dealing with trauma or who are therapists and kind of just picked their brains about how trauma works and how it's kind of embodied. And I wanted to avoid the thing that you have in Hollywood movies where trauma is like a visual flashback. It's like you have a hallucination or whatever, which I don't think is that. Yeah. Which I don't think the visual the hallucination thing is that, that <laughs> common, but I do think that, you know, yeah. the past has a way of coming back. And I actually have Sophie say at one point in the book, 
the pa the only thing that never goes away is the past which i thought was like a neat way of putting it because like mm -hmm. everything kind of everything goes away but the past is always here kind of and um and i think that you know it's i was sort of fascinated with the idea that in cs fund they're really hyper focused on the 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 minute to minute or whatever they don't have minutes but the 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 moment to moment passage of time and like every <laughs> single cycle being sorry that's my phone yeah <laughs> Sorry about that. Anyway, so in I was super fascinated by the idea that in CS Font okay. they're like hyper focused on the moment to moment, you know, passage of time and like, you know, these cycles of like sleeping and waking and working and everything and everything else, but they're they do not want to deal with the past at all. Like they just want to shove everything older than, you know, a little while than like a few does like a few generations ago they want to just sweep it under the rug except for a few things that they mythologize like the founding settlers and stuff and i thought that that was really interesting that you know that kind of dichotomy that in argulo they're they're kind of the opposite they don't really care that much about like the moment to moment passage of time and like what how they organize their their sleeping and waking and working and all that stuff but they're much more highly highly aware of history and like the history before they came to the planet and like just some of the stuff that that uh continues to shape their world and but even they don't really want to talk about the the hydroponic garden massacre that much it seems like and so it was like and by the way, I wanted the Hydroponic <laughs> Garden Massacre to be a thing that when you first hear about it, it sounds really funny. And like, because it does, it sounds like a cheesy horror movie or it sounds like a kind of a, a B movie or whatever. And then when you learn the details of it or start to kind of glimpse the details of it, you're like, oh, this was like a horrible atrocity that actually was like an act of genocide. And like, I wanted to kind of turn that on its head in a way that would like kind of, you know, be startling kind of. The other sort of speaking uh, sort of of this, the other sort of like way in which um, sort of trauma and memory and like the legacy of bad action shows up in the book is this like climate change motif that is also throughout the book. Um, and, you know, these characters are all dealing with climate change in in different ways. And um, I'm curious, like it is an alien planet. And you're talking about climate change. That is something we talk about a lot today. Like, how do you map Earth? climate change type themes onto like an alien world that is a really good question and like honestly i i mean god basically what here's what happened is um i was reading a lot of scientific papers about tidally locked planets or a lot i was reading some scientific papers about tidally locked planets and the thing that kept coming up is that you need this really you need this kind of air conditioning system um which i guess is composed of like you know, different wind jets that move heat from like the hot side, the, the day side to the night side. But also I, I kind of felt like I kind of came up with this idea that the, the Gellet had engineered a, uh, this kind of heavy cloud cover over the planet that acted as a kind of, that kind of acted as a kind of greenhouse, but also just kind of kept the, the hot air from, escaping and kind of directed it a little bit more towards the, the night side. And I, I, I'm not hundred percent sure that I got that part of it. Right. To be honest, I think that there was, I showed it to some people and I, I got some feedback, but 
it was i think there's a little bit of a, a fudge factor and it does have the thing of like well it's alien technology from 100 from like over a thousand years in the future so right. <laughs> it, it, you know but um i sort it's of close enough to me <laughs> i like the idea that it was this delicate balance on this planet and that having the the the, the day side and the night side of the delicate balance of those two sides uh required um a lot of handling and that humans just kind of when we show up of course we're going to screw that up and kind of create a huge uh just mess because that's what we do kind of and i just i don't know i was interested in in um yeah i i was sort of um i sort of like i said i reading about that that the scientific papers that people were doing in like 2013-ish or 2014-ish about uh the the kind of the the delicate kind of air conditioning system that a planet like this would need in order to keep the hot side from getting too hot and the cold side from getting too cold and then you like lose your atmosphere or you don't have liquid water anymore or you know various other terrible things happen um that kind of was one of the things that inspired me and also um i guess i just sort of i mean obviously i wanted to have stakes that kind of go up a little bit as the book goes on and this idea that uh you know part of why the Gellet are interested in Sophie is because they have a real problem that they need help with and you know they need humans to help fix this damage that humans have largely caused um I also had this idea in the back of my mind that you know humans have only been on this planet for like I don't know 500 years and maybe we just arrived during a really stable geological period on the planet and we think oh it's really stable the climate is really stable everything is great it's going to just stay that for way forever. But 500 years is an eye blink in like the life cycle of a planet. And it's entirely possible that there's also just a way in which things were bound to destabilize at some point because, you know, nothing stays in equilibrium forever. And that was a thing that I kind of had in the back of my head as well. Yeah. Well, in this sort of the, the climate piece also ties a little bit into the like colonialism narrative where you have like humans showing up on a planet being like, aha, we have, are going to colonize this planet and assuming that like the very intelligent people who live there who have a whole different way of like knowing things and figuring things out and who are very smart and have technology are just animals right that like need to be seen right. as threats and there's a great line i can't remember i think where exactly it is but um where i think it's bianca says like well of course you know we're just going to see anything we don't know as like something to be used by us as and not as like an its own entity um and i really appreciated that like piece of the book of like sort of a very real feeling depiction of like the ways that colonialism unfolds um just on a different planet <laughs> yeah and i actually i mean i i really think that if we met intelligent aliens we would try to eat them and we would try or we would try to kind of domesticate them in some way because that that is how we respond to meeting other species in general and that's like you know um and we we we're very slow to recognize any signs that another creature might be intelligent like um we don't tend to kind of be open to that we tend to assume that either intelligence is going to be manifested in a way that's super obvious to us or um you know um or it, it's just it's not there and like i don't know i mean i had like there were especially during that two two and a half year period where i was just scribbling tons of stuff i had versions of it where humans kind of some humans knew that the Gellet were intelligent but we had swept it under the rug on purpose like i had a whole thing where the character who kind of 
was like the the precursor to Sophie is like snooping around in some government building and finds like the secret place where all of the maps where somebody actually mapped the existence of this alien city uh, were like hidden because they thought it would upset people too much to know that the Gellet were intelligent. And I sort of experimented with having like there be a conspiracy to kind of keep it secret, but it always seemed, always felt more just kind of true and kind of, um, kind of weirdly satisfying on a gut level that it's just, it's not a conspiracy. It's just that humans are kind of willfully ignorant. <laughs> it's much more believable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you one last question and that's about um, a, a really specific character thing. I, I, the relationship between Sophie and Bianca is really, it's sort of a big thing that drives, especially the first half of the book. And it, it really, I mean, obviously there's like the big sh- sort of showdown at the end as well, but, um, and, and their relationship is such a huge piece of this. I will admit to you that I had like a super strong negative reaction to Bianca from the very beginning. And I was like, oh, I hate oh, wow. you. I hate you so much. Oh, no. I mean, not that like I enjoyed the book a lot and it's not, I did not take away from my enjoyment of the book, but I immediately was like, do not trust you. Do not like you. Like, it was just oh, like <laughs> I, I was like, no, 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 not into it. But a lot of people, a lot of um, readers in the, in the book club asked like about their relationship like are they a couple were they ever a couple we talked about writing some fan fiction about them you know getting together oh, wow. so, I wish you would <laughs> so I'm curious like how you thought about their relationship and sort of developing that sort of really interesting and complicated relationship that they have yeah I mean okay so again like it was only when I like quit my day job and kind of came up with this idea that Sophie kind of sacrifices herself for Bianca that I kind of started to get a handle on the book and um, I, my goal, and obviously this, I don't know, it's, you, you have goals and then things, you know, you, don't, you can't control <laughs> everything in the world, but my goal was for people to really identify with Bianca on some level and really like, like her and then feel really, you know, more upset when mm. she kind of turns out to not be a great person at the end of the book. And, um, because I feel like, you know, this is something in all the birds of the sky too, like all the characters in all the birds in the sky, including Lawrence and Patricia do horrible things and are really selfish and kind of awful people at various points and are kind of damaged and, and just, you know, but I, I wanted, so actually part of what happened with that book was uh, originally like even fairly late in the process, it started, the book started with like, wrote sorry uh sophie taking the blame for the food dollars and getting arrested on like page one that was like page one of the book and it was like a really kind of like action-packed opening she's sitting with bianca and the other kind of kids in the cellar the police come like thundering down the stairs and like demand to know who stole this money sophie figures out it was bianca takes the blame and gets dragged away that was like page one and it was like a very exciting opening to the book but I kind of got the sense that nobody, and then later I would kind of fill in the backstory of how Sophie and Bianca became friends and how they were roommates before this happened. And like, you would kind of get some, not flashbacks, but you would get kind of like exposition explaining their relationship after the fact. And it was not really satisfying. And I sort of wanted, so I wrote like one of the last things I wrote in the book was that opening section where we get some time with Sophie and Bianca before Sophie gets taken away by the police. And I really wanted, my goal was very much on the one hand to make Sophie a likable person and who you would, you would 
want to spend time with and you would like and you would identify with or whatever, but also to make it so that you eventually, when she kind of turns to the dark side, you can kind of see, you could, you could look back and be like, yeah, I could have seen that coming kind of. And like, I mean, to me, Sophie is, she's a very idealistic person. She really wants to do good in the world. She wants to help people. And she has like, her intentions are really good. And, um, she's, she's very unconscious of her own privilege, even though like she actually acknowledges her privilege openly in the start of the book. She actually kind of talks about how privileged she is, but it's in a kind of lip service way. Like it's in that way that like super privileged people will be like, yeah, I know I'm really privileged. And then go on to just completely ignore how privileged they are kind of. Um, and, but I also felt like, you know, part of what I was part of what I was thinking about is that I think mouth really does a number on Bianca. Like I think mouth really encourages like Bianca's worst impulses and kind of encourages her to think that like Bianca basically started the book. She's glimpsing the ugliness of her society for the first time ever. She's never seen how much of the social order that she kind of has been like criticizing in this super theoretical way, how much of it is under undergirded by violence and how much violence kind of props up the world she lives in. She did not realize that until she saw the police take Sophie away. And so she kind of is kind of confronted with the the real ugliness of her world for the first time. And I think the person who's there to kind of advise her and kind of help her to kind of put that in perspective is mouth and mouth is just using her to get what mouth wants. Uh, and mouth is just using her for her own purposes and mouth basically encourages her to kind of think yeah, violence is kind of the answer and, you know, everybody is just in it for themselves. And like later when she finds out that Mouth was actually just using her, that in a weird way reinforces that lesson because it's like, yep, everybody's out for themselves. And the way that the world works is just that you do whatever it takes to get what you want. And so I think that kind of the first half of the book is Bianca learning some really bad lessons and getting, and Mouth is a really bad influence on her. And, um... And I think that, you know, I sort of thought of, especially as I was revising it, like the final pass of revisions I did, I added a little bit more to that opening section to make it clear that Sophie is straight up in love with Bianca. And I think Bianca on some way level knows it. And I think Bianca is super straight. Like, I think Bianca is just like, I think that's what I was reacting to where I was like, oh, this like poor Sophie clearly is like so in love with this woman who knows it and is going to use it for all that she can and doesn't actually like return that feeling. I think Bianca cares a lot about Sophie. Like I think Bianca does actually care about her a lot and really is destroyed when Sophie is taken away. But I think that it's in Bianca's mind, it's much more of a friendship. And I think that, you know, I mean, definitely, I remember having, like, duped crushes on people and friends. <laughs> who among us has not? <laughs> yeah, and especially when I was that age, having friends who I would have probably, you know, taken the fall for them or whatever. I probably would have, like, if they'd committed a crime, I probably would have taken the blame for it. And I was, you know, friends that I was super in love with who probably didn't think of me the same way. I think that that's, like, super normal. And, like, yeah. I also was kind of thinking about all these Doris Lessing novels where there are these people who have these like really like super unhealthy relationships where it's kind of based on shared altruism, but also one person is kind of using the other a little bit. And I, I don't know. And also the reason why she's called Bianca, I think is because I was thinking of Becky Sharp in Vanity Fair, that Thackeray novel. Huh? 
and Becky Sharp is also it's been so long since I've read that book but I think Becky Sharp is also kind of a user if I remember yeah. correctly and so I don't know I wanted especially once I knew I had that ending that super dark kind of Blake 70 ending where <laughs> Bianca full on turns against Sophie and you know kind of tries to destroy her that was um, you know once I knew I had that ending I had to kind of go back and make the rest of the book support that ending which meant that we had to care about Bianca and Sophie but we also had to see the seeds of their uh, their destruction or their the seeds of, of their collapse as, as friends early on so yeah. it had to it, and you know a lot for me a lot of like noveling or novel writing or whatever is once you have an ending that you like just making the rest of the book support <laughs> it you know an exercise in retconning <laughs> yeah a little bit you know <laughs> Like you have yeah. the advantage, like I feel bad for people who write for like TV shows where they'll write like the season finale and it's like, well, episode 17 already aired like last week, but it would be great if we could go back and add a scene <laughs> to episode 17 that like really sets up this thing that we just did, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. if you're a novelist, at least you get, to, I mean, I guess if you write a series of books, you're screwed, but if you're a novelist, you at least, <laughs> or you could just be like Ursula K. Le Guin and just like kind of like rescind various parts of your world building. Like, I feel like there were so many things in her books where she would just be like, Oh, we don't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> just, we just go like, away. <laughs> that was the fascinating thing about reading all the Hainish books where she would just like, she just straight up, like just removed stuff that was like major yeah. plot elements. And she was like, Oh, that doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> You could just do that. Yeah. 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 I will say that um, I, I I said this thing that my feeling about Bianca to the book club and I was the only one who felt that way. Everyone else was like, no, no, like we liked her. She was really relatable. Hector said that she seems like that really relatable because she's sort of like people that you know that are born privileged, but they want to do something. She's really idealistic. You know, people, most people were absolutely on board with Bianca. And I, for, I don't know what it was, but I was like immediately, I was just like, Mm-mm, no, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <Just like. laughs> I mean, in a weird way, it makes me glad that like, different people see different things in Bianca and that it's not just like, she's not just somebody that everybody's like, Oh, you know, that I don't know. Cause I think that it, it makes her a more interesting character. Maybe if like different people see different stuff. And like one of the things that I did to, to try to make people like her more is I feel like she has all, a lot of the best funniest lines of dialogue in the book. She does have funny lines. I think mouth is also very funny, but like sort of not as much on purpose. I think she's just like a funny yeah. character. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much for all this time for writing this awesome book, oh, for letting us you. read it in book club. Everyone's very, was very excited. Um, is there anything else that you like, you know, is there anything that like you wish people picked up on in the book, you know, that like it's a hidden thing or anything like that? Oh, wow. I don't know. I mean, not so much. The thing that I want people to kind of take away from the book is the thing you mentioned about memory and, and you know, trauma and history and all that stuff. Like, that's the thing that I really thought was like the core of the book. So when you said that, it made me really happy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, to me, that was absolutely like all I think about when I think about this book a lot. And I, now I've, I went back and sort of re reread it before we were going to talk oh, wow. to make sure I kind of like had, had it all in my head. Um, and there's just some like, yeah, there's so many things and you think, you know, you think Sophie's the one who's maybe not dealing with the trauma really well, but in the end it turns out that Bianca's the one who dealt with the trauma in like the worst possible <laughs> oh, way, you know, like, yeah, like really. Sophie winds up kind of like coming out with like being very different, obviously. And it has obviously impacted her, but like she has a much healthier relationship with it in part because of her relationship with the Galette and like being able to, 
you know, think about memory in a different way. And Bianca's the one who just sort of like lets it eat her from the inside out and like rot her from the inside. And so she becomes this like horrifying person. Um, but yeah, I like, I loved it. The sort of the moment that at the end when like you, it's revealed that the Gellet are the ones who sent the um, insects to take out the citizens, I was like, oh. <laughs> it was incredible. So yeah, I, I really loved it. I, I'm a huge fan. So well, thank, thank you so you. much for, oh my God. Yay. for coming on the show. Okay, that's the interview, um, obviously. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Thanks especially to the folks in the book club for participating, for asking really interesting questions, and for reading these books and coming along in this little fun project. If you want to join the book club, you can do that at patreon.com slash flashforwardpod. You already know how to get to that page because you are patrons already because this is a patron-only bonus podcast. Um, but if you want to join the book club, I highly recommend it. It's really fun. Um, if you are currently at the $5 support level, it's only two extra dollars per episode. Um, and it's really fun. And I'm excited to talk about The Big Nine next. And you'll hear an interview with Amy Webb in your feeds at the end of the month talking about that book and answering questions from listeners and readers of about that one. Okay. Talk to you all soon. Bye.